0: You are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schabrat. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. It's really exciting to have you on Impact Hustlers, uh, Steve. Um, I've been waiting for this for a while, or we've been both waiting for this for a while to make it happen. And uh, you've been. Uh, across product for many many years have been developing many different hardware products some of which people uh probably know uh, or have used and i'm really excited to have you on the show yeah
1: super excited to be here thanks for having me
0: thank you so you started your career actually um by studying mechanical engineering in uh, berkeley and stanford and then um starting your first couple of roles after that. And I'd love as an introduction, just to understand your journey from studying mechanical engineering, to being an engineer, and then evolving your career into different roles and uh, to what you're actually doing now, uh, uh, advising and working with different startups. Uh, So uh, I'd love you to give a quick introduction to your career and where you're now.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, I started at uh, Stanford and Berkeley for uh, did mechanical engineering and material science. I was very interested in uh, how things worked and how to create new things. Um, cut my teeth from there originally at Apple on the, the first generation iPod, iPhone product design team. Uh, I was very young, so I can't take credit for anything, but it was absolutely a fascinating learning experience and got to work on some really interesting products and problems. Um I, I became very interested in how different companies made different types of products. So I ended up going into product design consulting for a few different firms and uh, working on a variety of, of different products, but ended up specializing in kind of first-generation consumer electronics. Uh, so some of those were uh, the original Beats by Dre studio headphones, the uh, first-gen Kindle Fire tablet for Amazon or Chromebook Pixel laptop for Google, a lot of early Fitbit, Nest, GoPro products, uh, stuff for Apple, stuff for HP. Um, it was really uh, just kind of a uh, there's a lot of new development in the consumer electronics space in the late 2000s, early 2010s, and I uh, got very lucky, right place, right time uh, at a variety of firms that were uh, working on interesting products. Uh, ended up joining HP. Uh, the premium products group, so high-end notebook computers to compete with the Mac, um, and worked on uh, early Spectre laptop products, uh, which has become a very successful business for them. So it was very cool to see how, uh, even within a large company, kind of the genesis of a new product group got started. Um, And at that point, ended up making a transition from focusing on, on engineering to focusing on well, maybe I can start a business, so building a, a company, not just building a product. Um, and so that led me to Oleo Devices, which was my uh, my first startup. Uh, I was focused early in the smartwatch space, uh, looking at how do we help fashion brands make smartwatches at a time when it was a, a set of technologies, hardware, software, machine learning that was very foreign to that industry. Uh, so that was really exciting. Uh, ended up uh, selling that to Flextronics, uh, where continued to work on wearables, and then from there, um, kind of went into the like a, a very different phase in my career where I transitioned uh, into product management at big tech companies. Um, variety of reasons, but was very interested in um, how software products were incepted and and developed at these kind of world class companies and and. You know, helping them also start to think about hardware and how those two worlds start to meet uh, so i joined the the Pixelbook group at, at google and then the portal group at uh, facebook and uh, very different cultures very different incentive structures very different ways of thinking about product especially from hp and apple which were hardware companies at their core uh, to companies where hardware was this new adjacency that they were bringing into view, this accretive opportunity. Um, so it was interesting. but uh, anyway, it uh, landed me back in uh, a place where my, my partner and I wanted to live somewhere new. So we moved uh, to Berlin uh, before we started a family and made a decision that you know early in my career was really focused on making products that made people smile. That's what got me out of bed in the morning and, uh, and brought me a lot of joy, the impact I, I wanted to have in the world. And then kind of that second phase was uh, really having impact at scale. So when you're at Google and Facebook, impact really means affecting large groups of people, uh, which was different than as an engineer focused on kind of building a singular experience for a singular person, so to speak. Um, coming to Berlin, decided I wanted to get back into the startup space, which is where my my passion lied, uh, and figure out how do I um, play a small role in uh, impacting Kind of our species for the better. How do I find companies and founders and investors that are making meaningful change that will have long-lasting effects, far longer than any of the the products I made early in my career, which many of them ended up in the trash two years after you know they shipped. Um, uh, and that led me to uh, to yeah to Berlin, where I met you and started uh, having this conversation.
0: There we go amazing uh that's that's a great journey and uh, you you have been a founder, um, but still, as a guest on this podcast, you may be slightly uh unconventional um, for anybody listening to this and uh, i'd love to kind of dive deep into that and why you 're actually on the show. I think you already highlighted uh your kind of uh passion for impact and um, um, uh, how you're trying to make a difference right now. Um, and obviously, mostly on the show, we have founders that are currently running uh, social impact-focused companies and that are sharing their journeys. Um, and with you, we have somebody on the show that combines like quite a lot of experience, product experience across many years, uh, experience from different companies, different approaches, maybe also different Angles on what impact means and how it is defined. So I'd love to learn a bit more about that. Uh, We spoke briefly about it beforehand. Um, uh, How how would you see like your personal relationship with social impact or your personal definition has evolved? But then also, how do you view it at the different companies that you worked at? If you compare companies like Apple or Facebook and Google and your own company? Um, was that kind of an evolving role? Was that an important role for you throughout the career? Or did that change?
1: Uh, it definitely changed. I, you know, I will be the first to admit that, you know, when I was younger and starting my career, uh, I was very focused and zoned in. Uh, what, what I worried about was how do I give the user of whatever product I'm working on, the absolute best experience possible. So I'm a very detail-oriented person, um, very much, I think, focused on making high-quality experiences. Um, so, so whether it's developing a product for Apple or Amazon or Google or, or whatever the company is, my early in my career when I was an engineer, my principal focus was how do I make people smile, and if I if I could design a product and then hand it to my mom or my dad or my sister or friend um, and they go, wow, this is, this is cool. You, you you did something on this. This is really, I love using this product. Um, I felt fulfilled. That was, you know, all I was thinking about at that point in time. And then fast forward a decade, uh, I find myself at, uh, and I'm actually going to skip over my startup because I, I was very much in that first mindset, even at, even at my startup, I was, I was still early, uh, in my journey, uh, fast forward to the Google Facebook product management phase of my career. Um, and impact started to change. It started to shift its meaning. I touched on it a bit earlier uh, when I was kind of introducing myself, but, uh, it starts to take the form of impact. Isn't, uh, the, the degree of happiness that you bring someone impact is the amount of people that you affect and that shift in definition of the word, um, within the culture of the organization, I think comes about based on the business model of the organization and the types of products that they deal in. I think, you know, obviously Google and Facebook, their entire business model is predicated on the more people that we have attached to the product the more revenue we can generate from them, lifetime value or ARPU or any of these metrics that have become popularized are predicated on the number of active users and the amount of time spent on device. Um, and that creates a definition of impact based on how many users can you get to spend more time on our product versus how much did you make that user smile. And now there's a, there's some correlation, right? I don't know, people smile, they tend to like coming back. So it's not to say that they're completely independent, but the, the, the focus does shift. Um, and so when you're making decisions, you start to focus on, okay, which of these features or which of these products, or you know which side of this trade-off, A or B, is going to uh, get the most people to interact with our product. Um, and, and that was, for me, interesting is stimulating. Uh, and it, it definitely gives you the opportunity to have a very large positive impact because you have a lot of people engaging with you, but you have less control over what that engaged audience gets to do. Uh, and you start to realize that you're, you're feeding an audience into a, a very large machine, but you're not actually controlling what that machine steers them towards. Um, and, and so that was a bit uh, that got me thinking a lot, let's say. And then I think, you know, fast forward again, where I'm at now and what I've kind of decided to, uh, to focus my time on is to combine those first two things um, and do that by working with, like you said, startups and, and investors and figure out, okay, how do we figure out the technologies, the trends, the businesses, the people, That are going to have a massive impact right at scale but make sure that it's a positive one and then how do we work with them to be successful but at the same time think about things you know down the road in advance so that they can start steering their ship well before uh you know they attract this massive audience and that's been it's kind of it's fulfilling on both of the first uh directions right that make people smile and make a lot of people affect a lot of people and brings them together so i've i've really enjoyed that but it's it's been a gradual broadening of my uh like visibility right from being super focused to what's right in front of me to like thinking in a much bigger
0: way got it really interesting um there's this really popular book called hooked uh which I'm sure I've never lived in Silicon Valley, but it's probably very popular uh, over there and it's popular in the tech scene. And I think what you just talked about probably relates to that a little bit where you're trying to optimize your products for engagement, because in many cases, the business models rely on that, right? Like if nobody's putting their eyes on Facebook and Google's products, um, there's no money to be made. Maybe let's exclude the hardware products that they've launched. But like, if you look at the advertising-based business models, there's very little money to be made, right? Um, d- do you think that needs to shift fundamentally? Kind of not just putting engagement on top of everything, but also looking at, okay, what's actually good for the user and for society as at, at large? Or is that kind of too much to ask from from companies like those?
1: Well, there's there's two sides to every coin, in my opinion. Well, I mean, I, there could be multiple sides, I guess. But I think in this, in this case, I, I think about food, um, just as a really easy to relate to example, most companies that many produce lettuce, aren't trying to make their lettuce more addictive so that everyone eats lettuce all the time right there's kind of this um, understanding that lettuce is a valuable ingredient in a balanced diet and it's best served with other ingredients um, and and so they you know they want to make high quality lettuce and they want to make lettuce that doesn't spoil and they want to make lettuce that they can transport and they want to make it as efficiently and environmentally friendly like they're constantly improving lettuce <laughs> as as boring as it might seem, um, but they're not necessarily trying to make it addictive and I think when it comes to you know sodas or or other or other confections uh, that's an example of a product where they are trying to make it as addictive as possible, right whether it's a high fat content or a high sugar content or caffeine or other chemicals that uh, make it addictive to our physiological selves. Um, and those are the ones that tend to cause health problems. So th- the way to solve that is, one, through education, uh, two, through exposing and transparency of what are the contents within that product. But those are often too complex for most people to really factor in, and it takes a lot of cognitive load. Um, and three, to, to regulate it and say, hey, like you can't put certain substances in certain foods, they're too bad for people, even though people like them. Um, and, and that can be applied to a whole sort of different industries, right? It's uh, food and drug, uh, uh, automotive, aerospace, like these highly regulated industries, because uh, you know there's, there's a danger associated with them. And I think what we're starting to realize with uh, algorithms and software uh, is that what used to be a fun little experiment in a lab somewhere and had kind of a sandbox around it has has now been proven to be a a very impactful at scale platform uh, that uh, really changes everything right from the, the the products you buy to the people you like to who you engage with to what you believe to what the facts are in your reality to you know, governments, right? Uh, and I think when you go through that transition from an ex- a small you know, experiment from a few nerds in a, a lab somewhere to affecting all aspects of human life and having a, a danger to you, then there starts to be an increasing need to say, okay, well, what are the nutrition facts Associated with this particular algorithm. And I think Apple and others are starting to um, mandate that those be required, but it shouldn't really be Apple making that decision. It should be, like, the the bodies that we elect to govern these things that are saying, hey, we have to be transparent about the ingredients in this algorithm or in this uh, software or in this business model. Um, And then, you know, there's the question of, similar to cars, like, how do we actually regulate the process required in order to launch a product? So there's, you know, on one extreme, the move fast and break things mentality, which is brought about by pure capitalism, right? It's, the most, it's one of the most efficient ways to extremely rapidly iterate and develop new features, gather feedback, analyze it, and then optimize what you do next. Uh, especially when when you're operating at a big data scale. But you're not thinking about all the future knock-on effects of every feature you release because that would go against the fundamental principle of move fast and break things. Like you're embracing breaking things, you can't then say you're also trying to prevent things from breaking. Um, I think when we look at food and drug or automotive or aerospace, there's an expectation that, hey, uh, because there's such a big consequence to every uh, product that you make, you really need to think through how could things go wrong in advance. It's not enough to say, we're gonna ship a car and then we'll see what kind of accidents people get into and then we'll, we'll update the design of that car in the future. Um, you have to put a seatbelt in, you have to put blinkers in, there's all these required parts that you have to then test and make sure that they work extremely reliably before you can ever bring that car to market because the expectation is if these things don't work right, people could die Uh, and we have seen them die. Um, And I think we need to to start to think about how do we take elements of bringing drugs to market, bringing cars to market, bringing lettuce to market and apply pieces of that to really powerful software and algorithmically driven technologies so that we avoid potentially big impact but to the negative effects in the future. And, and we haven't done that yet.
0: Got it. That That's really interesting. Um, and I think if I'm thinking about some of the best impact driven companies in my mind, or even thinking about previous guests on the podcast, and some of the most exciting ones are usually the ones that are uh, managing to align uh incentives right and we spoke briefly about it before the episode as well um in terms of their own incentives the kind of selfish company incentives that they need to return uh capital to shareholders and obviously you need to grow the company and all these things that uh, norm like a the, the usual average uh company in a capitalistic system uh will try to do with um, having a positive impact on customers, but also larger than that on society and reducing any sort of negative um, impact that they have. And I, I think there's um, probably very few companies that are really managing that to a degree that they eliminate the negative impact completely or um, there's always two sides to many coins, right? Like if, when we talk to, about technology, that debate is as old as or probably older than like nuclear power and a nuclear bomb and you know now AI, you know, you can use it for kind of good and bad, right? So beyond like regulating for that from a political standpoint and basically kind of banning or regulating kind of the negative use cases what would you say could be done to kind of shift the economic system towards that a little bit more as well? Like, if I think about companies, how they operate big companies, if they're publicly traded, they obviously report on a quarterly basis. Um, Many of them are quite incentivized to look at the short term rather than just focus on the next 10 years because their shareholders are expecting results every quarter. Um, Even for startups, obviously, if you're choosing the traditional venture route, um, f- for startups. Again, you have certain expectations that you need to meet. Um, how do you think about that in terms of outside of regulation, what could be done to shift startups, especially a bit more towards aligning incentives and, um, um, generating companies that are, have a net, net positive impact.
1: Yeah. So in my opinion, there's two, um, major ways to influence how people choose to act in any given moment. The first is uh, an immediate reaction, right? A, a When I do something, something happens to me very quickly that gives me feedback on the thing that I did. And typically that immediate reaction would come in the form of, did I get approval to get onto the app store, right? Or Um, Did the FDA approve my drug? It's like I made something and then someone told me right away, is this going to work or not? And and once I realize I'm inside of a a system that requires a certain level of um, uh, quality or foresight, then I start to uh, behave accordingly. Right. I start to conform to the expectation that has been set around me and enforced around me. And today in software and algorithms, there is no immediate feedback system, right? You you launch software and nothing happens to you, sometimes for a very long time, maybe decades later, right? A government agency will probe you and ask you to testify in front of Congress or something. But there, at that point, there's a new CEO in place, right? Many times. So, so I think we need to think about how do we create a, a smaller feedback loop to companies uh, so that we start to build a culture into companies that thinks about these things. Because it's unfair to negatively judge a company for operating the way they're operating today if they're not getting any feedback. And, and you know, a very human example of this, is it's like joining a company and not getting your first performance review until your 10-year anniversary. It's like, well, at that point, you know, no one told me I was doing anything wrong. So I, I didn't react to it. Uh, you know, I I could have been proactive, but most people won't be, right? They won't just guess at what they might change about themselves. They'll, they'll look for reinforcement learning. So I think that's uh, kind of the big first piece. I think the second piece, and, and you hit on it, is uh, kind of the follow the money ideology, which is how do we go upstream from the companies themselves and figure out how do we influence where the money flows down from, whether that's government research, whether that's big banks and and hedge funds or VCs uh, flowing it into these companies, like their goal is to make as much money as possible. That's what capitalism incentivizes. And capitalism is great in many different ways. It causes competition. It causes diversity. uh, it, It forces... Uh, people to be innovative and try new things and uh, kind of get ahead, so to speak. Uh, It's a controversial topic, but I think there are a lot of aspects to capitalism that are good, but there needs to be some guardrails on it. And the, the fallacy that I think all of us fall into is thinking that our oversimplified desires to have things be constant is best. And if nature shows us anything, it's that uh, kind of continual change uh, tends to bring about the most robust and um, uh, kind of long standing uh, positively stable systems. So uh, going through periods for each technology, let's just take uh, ML for an example, where yes, it's very unregulated, you're welcome to experiment, it's there, and then actually going through a gradual change where we say, okay, well, when you reach a certain scale, there's a certain expectation of foresight and, and thinking that went into the impact that this could have. It's like, okay, you're now a more mature technology. Like, Let's really make sure that all the lessons learned across the industry are being backpropagated into new companies that are coming out. And let's ensure that people who are investing into those companies have a responsibility to include this as part of their diligence, and the way you do that is you uh, re- you make them exposed, right? You say if you don't, it's like taking money from an unaccredited investor. Like you are exposed for a lawsuit because you need to have some skin in the game. You need to have some responsibility for the things that you're financing, uh, and I think that's kind of the long cycle. And if you're able to take that long cycle and say, hey. We're going to monitor all these different technologies or advancements, and at the right stage of their development, we're going to shift the rules to ensure that we uh, are incentivizing down the financial stack the types of uh, checks and balances, I don't know if that's the right phrase, that we want financiers to have for companies, and that we want companies to have internally before they just release products out there. Uh, I think that can start to systemically uh, motivate behaviors that prevent potentially negative high-impact outcomes.
0: Love it. Uh, I love that discussion, and I could probably continue with that for a very long time. But I'd love to take uh, uh, things a little bit uh, from the kind of societal, political, economic level into advice that we can talk about for uh, early-stage founders for people that are looking to launch maybe hardware companies that are passionate about solving a social or environmental problem with the hardware that they're doing, but they're at a very very early stage and they want to obviously set up the company for success. Uh, they want to set up the company in a way that incentives are aligned for them, that they maximize the social impact, that they don't have to trade off profitability, but also navigate the difficulties of building hardware products uh, in general which is hard enough already right um so i'd love to walk through all these different things uh with you a little bit and uh, maybe first of all from your experience i think especially when you look at kind of more kind of impact-driven founders impact-driven startups uh in hardware what do you see like common mistakes being made or from your own career that you see things to avoid when first starting out, uh, in hardware?
1: Definitely. So, and I actually think hardware in many ways does this are the stuff that we were just talking about, um, planning ahead, uh, even better than software, right? You have to do a lot of reliability testing. You have to do a lot of quality control. You have to build robust, sustainable supply chains. Um, there's a lot of environmental considerations and how you manufacture your product. So in a lot of ways, the hardware industry actually does do a lot of this stuff, um, significantly more, uh, in my experience than, than software companies or companies that are algorithmically based. Um, but to answer your question, advice for, for early stage hardware companies, uh, I mean, a few things. The first is it's, it's gonna, it's likely to take twice as long and cost twice as much as you think. Um, hardware is really hard. And part of that is uh, you have to plan one, two, sometimes more years in advance for the, the product that you want to release. And um, the development cycles and the, what's typically called the product development process um, is, is fairly mature in the hardware space. So you, you start by you know, doing user research and figuring out you know what features to include in the product. You prototype it. You test it. Uh, You spin up a supply chain somewhere, you go through engineering validation test, EVT, design validation, production validation, and then ramp and and you ship the product. And each of those tend to take six, eight, 10 weeks each. Um, There's like a a clear set of check boxes. Hey, the product has to pass all these tests in order for us to go to the next phase. There's this, this very mature process. And... Uh, A lot of that is because of the stuff that that we've been talking about. It's, hey, uh, to pass this phase of product development, uh, say you're working on an iPhone, right? We have to make sure that if I drop it from a meter high onto wood or concrete, that it's not going to crack. We have to make sure that at altitude, it continues to function properly in different humidity environments and saline environments, UV exposure. Uh, different chemicals it might come in contact with, like sunscreen or lotions. You actually have hundreds of these tests that you conduct very early on in the product development process before you've launched it, right? This is a year, two years before the product ever sees a customer and you get any feedback from customers on it. You're figuring out, is sunscreen going to be a problem for the material, right, that this phone is made out of? And you do that one because it lowers your cost of warranties and repairs and customer complaints, of course, but also, you know, you, you want to reduce the risk. It's going to give someone a rash or it's going to break, or it's going to, you know, cut someone if they hold it the wrong way. And so you're, you're planning for this well in advance. And I think, uh, it's a really good example because it touches on our earlier conversation of by thinking ahead, you increase the probability that your impact is going to be positive versus negative. And it gets to your most recent question that I'm answering here of what's the best advice for founders? Well, it's, it's prepared to do that stuff. I think mean, especially a lot of startups I work with that are more software oriented, that are starting to get into hardware. Um, it's a bit of a, a shift to think about, hey, I can't just issue an update. Right? I need to think about all these things up front and plan it in and make sure I'm testing for it because once the product's out there it's out there right I, I can't change it readily um, and uh, yeah so the best way to do that is kind of a natural follow-on is uh, definitely make sure there's experienced people on the team that have launched many products before, not just one. I mean institutional knowledge is is king in terms of making sure, you're baking it into your process. Of course, there's consultancies and there's other ways that you can kind of fill these gaps within your company, but uh, nothing beats having that institutionalized knowledge captured. And then the second piece is like develop your process, whether it's your reliability test spec or your product development process or your checklist at each of these phase gates, right? Each of these stages of development. Um, you know, it's not that different than writing your your QA test for software right ahead of time, uh, kind of a good practice there. Um, But yeah, really making sure you plan for that uh, ahead of time and ahead of your capital raise, quite frankly, tends to be where many founders get tripped up.
0: Got it. Um, And uh, you spoke earlier, obviously, at the beginning of your career, you were very focused on kind of making people smile. And uh, that feels still like kind of the main philosophy for a lot of tech products out there, right? Like, even if you think, Uh, you you gave the iphone as an example is kind of obviously make providing people with a great product experience whatever that may be making them smile making them productive whatever they're trying to achieve stuff like that um and even apple i mean has shifted probably uh you know probably better than me uh like from the Jobs time to the Tim Cook times, where they're much more focused now on sustainable factors and actually repurposing, reusing, recycling stuff than they were in the past. Um, as a founder, how do you have any advice or framework or tips on how to not just kind of avoid negative impact through testing, but kind of build the maximize the positive social or environmental impact uh, with your products um, early on when you're designing them? Uh, The most
1: important thing to do is to build it into the incentive structure of the company. And the most common way to do that is to make it part of the culture and the values to explicitly list what you want the culture and the values of the company to be because every team member you hire is going to start to weave those into the decisions that they make day to day. And if every decision that comes up within the company goes through the lens of, is this environmentally friendly? Or is this accessible to a wider population? Um, you know, those other examples. That's going, to, that's going to affect many different decisions. If all you do is say, I want the product to be recyclable. OK, I mean, that's a good thing to do. But it's only going to affect a very narrow class of decisions that are made across all the different people and all the different teams. Um, And what you're going to end up with is likely a recyclable product that, you know, maybe had unsustainably sourced materials to begin with. Right. So uh, it's back to your original point, I guess. Uh, Making sure the incentive structure within the company is reflective of the values that you want each decision to factor in. Uh, throughout the history of and, and throughout the different teams within the company,
0: I don't know how much you can speak about it, but I think one interesting example from your career is also uh, obviously, we haven't spoken much about your own startup, Olio. I would love to talk a little bit about that in a second, but I'm thinking about Portal as well from uh, Facebook, right? Um, uh, obviously, Facebook, if I'm talking to an audience that's passionate about social impact, that's a widely debated company as a whole. But I think if you're looking at the portal product, actually, for my own experience, for my own personal definition, it can be actually regarded as a product that's having a potential positive social impact. I haven't looked at the numbers or the results or if it's actually having that. But if you think about kind of uh, how uh, how it's positioned, almost kind of of enabling older generations communicating with the with their family. I sent my mom, uh, one of them because she's really struggling to eat. She doesn't, ha- she has a laptop. It doesn't have a webcam. She's struggling to connect a webcam to it. It's too complicated to set it up for her. It was like a nice device to have at home to be in touch with me. And that's a great social impact. That's making her smile. But also in these times of the pandemic, it's having a clear mental health impact where she was locked in uh, alone at home, pretty much uh, me living abroad, her living in Germany, and this being a product that could connect us truly. So I don't know if you can share anything on that. uh, When designing products like that, uh, kind of some examples on how to think about the social impact of it, because the product could have been completely different as well. It could have been just another way of uh, using the standard Facebook products, but it was positioned in a bit of a different way, right?
1: Yeah. So Portal TV, uh, which was the product that um, that I was working on at, at what is now Facebook Reality Labs, um, you are the exact product to market fit that we were focused on. So specifically, uh, for example, call it grandparents and and their grandchildren that are separated by distance, and want to stay involved intimately in each other's lives. It's life size, you know, on the biggest screen in your house, from the comfort of your couch, hands free. Uh, It's able to track the kids as they run around the room. It's hard to get them to sit in front of a phone and talk to their grandparents for an hour. Like this was a product that, it's it's video chat at the end of the day, but it delivers it with nuance uh, that actually creates a much more engaging, much more enjoyable, much more smile prone, experience for a group of a a very specific group of users, right? It's not for every user, uh, but it's for this, this target core user. And it was really good at that. Uh, It's encrypted. Um, The WhatsApp calls are end to end encrypted. It has a variety of different communication protocols that it's now working with. Uh, I think it's a great product. It's, you know, it's, it's has a lot of safety, security, privacy built into it uh, and it allows people to stay closer especially during COVID. But even without COVID, people separated by distance. And and I think that's wonderful. So I was excited to work on that product. Um, and I think uh, regardless of what people think about the company, that product itself, I think, was aiming to solve a noble mission. And, and that felt good. Uh, it also was a stepping stone to uh, a new class of technologies that we're all going to start experiencing within our home, and that was interesting, right? How do you start to take these intimate, shared, remote experiences and and build on top of the simple video call and, and offer you know a variety of ways to engage with one another? So I think that was that was really interesting. Uh, in terms of impact, I think scaling it obviously is challenging. There's a lot of competitors, right? Uh, just the other day, I was reading. Uh, Uh, rumors that Apple is looking at coming out with uh, kind of their version of a smart display, Uh, FaceTime's a big network. Apple has a a massive captive audience of people that communicate on their products through their protocols. Um, That's going to be a very competitive product. Google has theirs. Amazon has theirs. This is not the only product operating in a space, but Portal TV specifically, I think, solves a very specific problem for a very specific target in a way that nobody else yet um, can solve because it's the only product that really works well on the TV. Um, so yeah, I think I think it was a, it was it was really interesting.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, I believe that. Um, yeah, let's cover a little bit at, as the last point of this before we run out of time as well. Uh, cover your founder journey as well a little bit, and maybe even some of the experiences you've made since then, advising founders as well. Um, so you actually founded Olio in 2013, I think that was the same year that Pebble was launched, I think. And from my point of view, Pebble was kind of the first company that made it really kind of a mass market mass, or to some degree, at least kind of pioneering it. Obviously there was wearable companies before that, but, um, you were pretty early on, uh, in terms of wearables, um, back then um and you had uh, quite a few years of a, a journey with the company before selling it uh, what were your like tell us a bit about that journey but also like what were your biggest lessons learned, learned or mistakes made uh, during that journey that you can share with us now
1: yeah so uh, it was it was right when pebble was launching it was before uh, the apple watch or android had launched their android wear program I think most of the products were Fitbit, Jawbone, and Pebble at the time. Samsung had just started their product. And uh, it was actually part of the impetus for us starting Olio. Everything was rubber or plastic. We didn't think that people would want to wear, that everyone would want to wear kind of a nerdy rubber or plastic technology device, uh, that things you wear on your person are more about fashion than they are about function nobody wears a watch to know what time it is you wear it to express something about yourself uh you wear it to yeah kind of tell the world um whatever it is you're trying to tell them i'm wealthy or i have good taste or i like this brand or whatever and uh for that reason it was fundamentally different than i mean we knew apple was working on a watch but it's fundamentally different than an apple product like a mac where it's the same Looking product in a boardroom, as it is in a dorm room. there isn't the need for this differentiation. Uh, you want a product that feels like a tool, right It's a utility product. It, it's understated. Fashion's the opposite. So I think us breaking in uh, to that market was really to say, we're going to let the world's fashion brands offer you a variety of style, and we're just going to make it smarter. We're going to let it do more for you than just tell time. Uh, in fact our the way we would think about it internally at the company was we wanted to make watches that save you time not just tell you time and so a lot of the features we created were to that effect but it was a very different approach than we want to make a computer on your wrist right uh and uh
0: yeah that's what what pebble was right like pebble was pretty much this thing that gave you a list of notifications everything popping up and stuff like that and i think Everything I've seen about Olio was complete opposite, basically much more uh, kind of focus on simplicity, it seems.
1: Yeah, and it's a different target user. I think, you know, what Eric did at Pebble was very cool. Uh, you know, I visited their offices. You know, we, in some ways it was a competitor, but it was like a friendly competitor. It was a competitor that you hoped succeeded because you were both trying to build a new space that never existed before. And you were focused on very different parts of the market. Um, Uh, in terms of challenges that we faced, you know, there's a million of them, right? I was a first time founder. I made all sorts of mistakes. You know, uh, you, you learn a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, one of the things that really stuck with me though, and, and I tell companies that I advise today, uh, this story all the time is the benefits of really being focused and saying no to good ideas, uh, so that you can focus on great ideas. And the example from, from Olio for me was when we started, I didn't have the benefit of learning all these best practices in product management and a lot of the things that I learned at Google and Facebook and elsewhere afterwards. And you know, we knew who our target market was in terms of their demographics, but we didn't necessarily know, uh, you know everything about them. We didn't go deep enough. So we ended up having to make a choice. Are we going to build an Android app? Or are we going to build an iOS app as the companion app for the watch? And it determines is this product going to work for Android users and or iOS users? And we said, hey, you know what? We This product should be working for everyone, right? They're, they're, we don't want to artificially limit who this product is for. Uh, we went out and talked to people. Everyone liked this product. And so we built an Android app and an iOS app. And we launched the product. And it turns out that 80% of all of our customers... Uh, were iOS users. And there was a number of, of reasons for that. Um, but the big learning, regardless of what the reasons were, were like, had we actually researched willingness to pay and uh, the, the target demographic that is the likely customer for this product before we launched it, we could have halved the amount of work that we put into the product that we launched. And we could have used that 50% of our energy to make a better product for our iOS users first and uh that probably would have been better for everyone and you know we, we sold out every batch of watches that we made so we, we didn't have a demand problem we had a supply problem uh, but part of it was we spread ourselves really thin and uh I, I look at products like clubhouse today where they only have an ios app and android users are really upset about it understandably like everyone should have access to it um but uh it was probably the right move Because what they probably realized was we can make a better product if we focus on building for one platform first. Uh, And if I were to guess, they probably looked at who are the core demographics, who are the creators that we want to get on this platform, where is there a willingness to pay, um, and which, uh, which operating system has the most of those. And my guess is it turned out to be iOS. And so they said, we're going to build for that platform first. We're going to make sure this thing has really strong product market fit and growth metrics. And then we're going to expand and capture a broader audience. And I think that's a very important um, reminder to all founders, myself included, is to make sure to really focus on having the biggest impact for a, a target audience so that you can differentiate yourselves from everything else you're competing against uh, and really win your core market first. And then you earn the right to expand and to spread out and to start to kind of reach out next to you and, and pull in accretive products or revenue streams or target uh, users. Uh, and that that tends to, statistically at least, uh, give companies the highest uh, likelihood of a positive outcome. Or else you, you, you try to boil the ocean and you end up not uh, making enough of a, an improvement on what else is out there because you're trying to please too broad of a constituency
0: was that a broader problem in the wearable market? obviously some of these companies you mentioned they're not around anymore pebble isn't around anymore jawbone isn't around anymore um, you know like it was a very difficult market for anybody to really succeed in the long term uh, was the kind of mistakes that kind of all these companies make? Made at scale, uh, lessons learned from that market uh, that maybe founders can still use today and kind of consider when they're launching not just wearables, but any kind of sort of hardware product.
1: It was the wearable market uh, is fascinating as a learning experience. And it, it probably the second biggest learning uh, you just touched on, which was uh, timing and extrinsic factors, right? Context that you're operating within. I think you know, we were pretty early to the wearables market, so was Pebble and others. I think it takes an incredible amount of capital and long-term thinking in order to um, entrench yourself sufficiently to, to break out in that market, in part because you have to capture a large amount of data, you have to build um, uh, user loyalty and advocacy, generations of products are relatively slow. I think Apple has the appetite and the willingness to do it, and that's why they're the single largest watchmaker on the planet by a large margin now. Um, I think other watch brands, uh, there was an initial appetite, but Wall Street actually, and you touched on this earlier, shorter term kind of analyst thinking actually penalized them for strategically pivoting their businesses to essentially what the future of their industry was going to be because of how they were evaluated. So being evaluated on your profit margin, right? Versus as a, as a value company, versus a growth company, so to speak. Um, so I think, uh, I think a lot of the early, I mean, and I remember there was maybe 60 Kickstarter and Indiegogo projects in the wearable space. It was very frothy and popular at the time, um, but there just wasn't sufficient long-term thinking and commitment for like any of these companies, except for maybe Apple to really break out. Even Google has struggled in the space with Android where Samsung, I rarely see in in the market. Uh, I can't, I, I'm i not in every market, so they might be very successful in parts of the world that I'm not in, but um, it definitely feels like uh, it's it's gone into a winter. Uh, I do believe though, that there will be a, a spring for wearables Um, as supporting technologies and our ability to do kind of at-scale flexible cloud computing and ingest these variety of data sets and then pipe them into applications for a variety of different um, uh, usage modes. So like insurance companies using Fitbit data, right? Like a lot of these companies are building out the ability to make use of what these wearables can do for you. And I think at some point we'll see a resurgence and we'll see wearables just like connected homes start to kind of really come back to the fore because the the infrastructure and the ecosystem around them will be more developed. So they'll be more useful and there's more immediate value.
0: So I got la- one last question uh, for you. And usually I always ask founders about the future of their company and how it impacts the world. In your case, I'd love to focus on, uh, if you think about 10 years from now, how do you think designing products uh, and creating products has to change um, to optimize for social and environmental impact beyond just making people smile, having also great uh, social impact on the world?
1: I think um, to optimize for social impact, uh, the big changes that I hope to see, uh, I'll name a few. I think the first is the stuff we talked about earlier around making sure that there's an incentive structure for companies, especially companies developing algorithmically driven products and uh, software-powered uh, products, to have to think about the potential future issues and problems that could be that could exist uh, as a result of their technology, and uh, have to put in place safety countermeasures in the same way that an auto manufacturer has to build and test a seatbelt system before they ship the car, uh, I think. Uh, starting to require that and, and penalize companies that don't put that uh, type of thought into their products ahead of launching them is, is fundamentally going to, uh, yeah, it's just going to be extremely important going forward because the, a developer and a, and a product designer have access to extremely powerful technologies very quickly. So they're able to develop very powerful products extremely quickly with much less capital than it used to require. Uh, And I think now is an appropriate time to say, okay, let's let's put some of that saved time, energy and capital into thinking about things ahead of time. Uh, It'll slow us down. That's that's a perceived downside, but it will result in uh, a lower likelihood of a negative, a large negative impact. So I think that's the first thing. the, The second thing I'll mention in terms of how we design products in the future for for social impact is. Uh, I- improving our our diversity in the teams and the leadership and the sources of funding uh, that are creating these products. So I think you know of the the companies I advise, roughly half of them are uh, female founders, and about 25% of them are focused on femtech uh, products. And I think the, part of the reason for that is there's a uh, it, there's more friction to learning and and getting advice and um, having all the advantages of of people that start companies when the people who've done it before you are different than you across a variety of dimensions. So the more people we can get crossing over those barriers and just sharing knowledge and sharing experience and sharing connections uh, into parts of the ecosystem that historically, for whatever reason. just haven't been as, as represented, uh, starts a flywheel because once they have, once some of them at least have some degree of success, they will then be able to, uh, and will be more inclined to pass that along. And, and historically they'll tend to pass that along to people like them. So it's that crossover that ends up being the highest friction communication pathway. Um, so I think spending a lot of time just finding as many people different than you and sharing the things that you know and you're good at starts to bring equity that ends up uh, propagating for a long time in ways that you know I'll never see directly, but I believe exist because it's just our nature. Um, and I think the same is true for uh, products. If, uh, for example, uh, women CEOs and founders start making products for women that women love and use and prefer over products that used to be made for them uh, by men, uh, because there's more empathy for the user that you're serving, because you can identify and relate to them better. Uh, If that is true, then women will realize, oh, I love using product X versus Y, and I recognize a pattern of it was developed by a, a female founder. And that starts to be very motivating, especially for young women, to say, okay, I see this pattern, and now I believe that I can actually create products for an underserved part of my demographic that I feel a a pain point with or a user need with, Uh, and I have confidence that I can do that better than the products that are there today because I have this advantage that I've seen play out in the market in some other product that I've used. And then that's another flywheel that starts to spin. So my um, kind of 10 years from now, to answer your question, or, or even just thinking about the next generation in general, I think transferring knowledge to people different than ourselves um, and helping people different than ourselves build product for their demographic starts two very important flywheels that I hope will uh, carry on and, and bring a lot of really interesting, different perspectives to the types of companies and the types of products that we all get to use and and appreciate in the future.
0: I love that. Uh, Thank you, Steve, for sharing that and being part of that change as well. Now advising so many startups and uh, working with different ventures uh, at the moment. And thanks very much for taking the time for this. I really enjoyed our discussion.
1: It was great. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.